On the day of Pentecost, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What an honour and a joy it is to be invited to preach here at St Albans on this feast day of Pentecost and in celebration of the baptism of our grandson Theodore, Teddy Stowe. I'd like to think with you afresh today then, albeit very briefly, and from the different perspectives of our two Pentecost scriptural readings, on how the doctrine of the Spirit interacts with our understanding of the sacrament of baptism. Perhaps, or so I want to suggest, this should be a rather more disturbing and destabilising matter than we ordinarily presume. So first, take today's familiar reading from Acts, the story of fire and tongues suddenly coming upon Jesus's followers. What does this mean? asked those first disciples on the morning of Pentecost. And it seems that it was far from obvious to them then, and perhaps worth another puzzled query from us again now. But what we are surely being told here most obviously is that the coming of the Holy Spirit, and indeed any invitation of the Holy Spirit into our lives, supremely at baptism, involves first and foremost an interruption of business as usual. Maybe a rude and disconcerting one. Indeed, for those early followers of Jesus, this wasn't even just any ordinary interruption, but a kind of fast forward into the end times, as forecast by the prophet Joel, a moment of fiery inspiration and urgent decision, a moment in which the unleashing of tongues reversed the ancient divisions of Babel and signalled a whole new world of unity and communication, the beginning of a complete transformation of the sinful, divided world as we know it. It follows then that if the coming of the Holy Spirit indicates first and foremost an interruption of business as usual, whether in baptism or in any calling on the Spirit's aid, it cannot mean a confirmation of the current world's ways, but rather a signal destabilization of them. In baptism, the candidate is, as it were, wrenched out of the life of the world and family as dynasty, and interrupted into the family as church, as redeemed sonship in Christ. Yet the radical nature of this rupture has all too often been domesticated in the past, especially, I fear, in earlier forms of family baptism, which some of us may even vaguely remember from our youth. As Lauren Winner's recent book, The Dangers of Christian Practice, brilliantly illustrates, Many upper-crust Protestant baptismal parties of the earlier 20th century, often performed at home, were precisely reenactment of dynastic honour, symbolised by the family christening robe and the family silver bowl for the baptismal water. They were thus shows of wealth and implicit displays of social power to other families, friends and neighbours. But if the Holy Spirit in baptism rudely interrupts that world of dynasty and blood ties and social honour, with what exactly does it replace it? When we turn to today's Gospel reading from John, secondly, we get a typically subtle Johannine answer to this conundrum, but one not immediately easy to unpack. 
Here we move from the spirit's interruption to what we might call the spirit's induction into truth in the deepest and most mysterious sense of that term. Recall, Jesus in this text is preaching his farewell discourse to his disciples before his passion, death and resurrection. He warns them, elusively and disturbingly, that he has to go away, but this will mean something even better than his continuing physical presence with them. A strange sort of game of musical chairs in which he departs to his father and the spirit of the father comes instead. From the perspective of later Trinitarian orthodoxy, this logic might of course seem a bit iffy and the early church fathers struggled mightily with this text. For it surely cannot mean that the roles and functions of the Son and the Spirit are divided, or that one literally replaces the other. No, it is the story of the economy of salvation that John is telling here at the historical, not the metaphysical, level. Jesus' incarnate life is coming to a close at this juncture in John's Gospel. But we, the readers, already know that after the resurrection, it will burst into a new realm of glory. Yet when Jesus is no more seen on earth as he was before, it is the spirit who he promises will lead us into all the truth, inducting us, we might say, into those deeper mysteries of his suffering and glory, which not even Jesus himself in his lifetime, according to John, could fully disclose because it will be more than we could bear. Yet, by the Spirit's continuing work, we are now being embedded ever more deeply into that transforming life of the Trinity. Interruption, and then induction into all truth. These are the core meanings of the Spirit at Pentecost, and so too, most fundamentally, at the start of our Christian lives in baptism. I do not know if my grandson Theodore has any conscious inkling yet that his life has this week been cosmically interrupted. Maybe his parents would welcome it if it were so. But of course, it is the particular job of his godparents, his parents and grandparents, this loving parish and the wider church to cooperate with the spirit in keeping his feet to those Pentecostal flames over the years and in discerning with him what induction into the ever-deepening truth of the Spirit's disclosure means for his and all our lives in Christ. What does this mean, they asked at Pentecost? To be the church interrupted and the church inducted into all truth may indeed be so for us all unto our lives end. Amen.